This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the 27th Annual Writers Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university, and it is our pleasure to have David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, a contributor to The Atlantic, PBS NewsHour, author of several books, including Bobo's in Paradise, On Paradise Drive, Social Animal, Road to Character, Second Mountain. He's known for his observations on what makes society work or not work with piercing insight and humor and his just plain reasonableness something we really admire him for, and it's a tough combination. David Brooks, welcome to the Writers' Symposium. Thank you. <laughs> First of all, it's a pleasure to be with you all. Uh, super fun to see actual human beings after writing in my underwear for two years. Uh, and I got to spend a lot of time with students today at Paloma, which is always a thrill. I did five or six events, got to meet with a bunch of students. I did have a story running through my mind as I was doing all these different conversations, which was I made the mistake of recording my first book for Books on Tape. And when you do that, you realize how boring your book is because you have to read it aloud. But I did get a story out of it, which was the sound engineer told me about a novelist who had a 700-page novel that he had to read all by himself. And so in the middle of the book, the sound engineer looks in the booth and the guy's weeping. And the engineer pushes the button and says, sir, is there anything I can do to help you? And the novelist says, don't I ever shut up? <laughs> um, so I, I, ho I hope I've not strained the community's patience today, but I'm happy to be here. If you see me weeping, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll know the answer. So let, let's start this way. Professionally, you started out as a crime reporter in Chicago. Then you became more nationally known. But your real roots as a writer go back to Paddington the Bear in childhood. How did that awaken something in you? Yeah, I was seven. Um, and I'm a big believer in this thing called the Annunciation Moment. There are some things that happen early in life that prefigure everything that comes later. So I'm in second grade. And I read this book. And I just think, I want to write these things. And I actually went back years later and um, reread Paddington the Bear. And it's actually a very sad story. It's about a it bear very who leaves sad. Peru is stuck in a train station with no family. I'm like, what happened to me? <laughs> um, but, Why did that attract yeah, you? So yeah. I, I started writing. I had my first piece published in second grade literary magazine. It was, you know, a crime thriller. Uh, and, and then I just started writing. And it's been 50 years since then. And there have probably not been 200 days that I've not written a thousand words. So I write seven days a week, a thousand words. And it's sort of been central to my life. In high school, I wanted to date this woman named Bernice. She didn't want to date me. She dated another guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. <laughs> and so, so that was my values. And my wife, when we got married, thought we would have these nice leisurely breakfasts. But I really didn't talk to anybody until I've written my thousand words. And so I come out of it at 9.30 or 10.30 or 11.30, however fast it goes, 
but I just need to do that every day. Uh, and if I don't do it for a couple of days, I get rusty. And probably a little cranky. Um, you know, yeah. I, even on vacation, I'm really, I really need to do wow. it. Wow. You know, you wrote for your college paper as well. This is one of my favorite anecdotes about you. Uh, at the University of Chicago, and when you heard that William F. Buckley was coming to the University of Chicago to speak, you wrote this satirical uh, column. And didn't you actually say something like, how about it, Billy? How about giving me a job? Did you say that? Yeah, he had written this uh, extremely pompous book called Overdrive, which was like, you know, I wake up in the morning, I talk to Queen Elizabeth, and I talk to David Niven, and then I have extended bouts of name dropping and making people feel inferior in the evenings, and it was like all this stuff. So I wrote this parody about him, you know, Christopher, or William F. Buckley was born on Christmas Day in Bethlehem, and <laughs> he wrote three volumes of his memoirs on the day of his birth, uh, about the age before Buckley, the glorious dawn, which was about the... Con- the conception of Buckley and then the, his coming into his fight in World War II, me against Germany. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, I, at Yale, Buckley formed two magazines, one called the National Buckley, one called the Buckley Review, which he merged to form the Buckley Buckley. Uh, <laughs> and so I wrote this and I ended it with this joke. And so he came to campus, gave a speech to the student body, and at the end of the speech, he said, David Brooks, if you're in the audience, I'd like to give you a job. But, and so, but where were you? So that was the big break of my life, but I was not in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a good excuse because I had been hired by PBS to go to Stanford to debate Milton Friedman on a TV show. And it was Milton Friedman Talks to the Young. And I was then a socialist, and I basically, you can go on YouTube, and if you type in Milton Friedman, David Brooks, you'll see a guy with a big, heavy afro, these 1980s gigantic glasses, which were apparently on loan from Mount Palomar Lunar Observatory. (laughs) Uh, And the show is me making an argument that I read in some book, him destroying it in six seconds, and the camera lingering on my face for 20 or 30 seconds while I tried to think of what to say. Can, can I just say, I watched that video. <laughs> oh, I did. And I, I've never seen you just struck dumb the, <laughs> yeah. way, the way he struck you dumb. I mean, yeah, I've been struck dumb many times uh, since then. But, but he was the greatest debater ever against other Nobel Prize winners, let alone a 20-year-old kid. It was totally unfair. I was bullied. Uh, <laughs> But I called Buckley literally three years later and said, is the offer still open? He said, yeah. And so I moved to New York. Would would you advise college students today to take that approach in their job search to, <laughs> to insult the person they want yeah. to, uh, to work for? Yeah, it takes a, big, a bigger person than me. Uh, if somebody insulted me, it would be like, get the hell out of here, kid. Uh, but... Um, he, was, he, he had a great facility for not asking you about your politics. If he sensed writing talent, he would hire you. Hmm. And the, so people, Joan Didion, Gary Wills, lots of people we don't associate with conservatism were, had my job because he just said writing talent. And then when he, um, 
he edited me. He was brutal. He would my little paragraphs I would write for the magazine would come back covered in red ink. It would say, "Come on, David, do better." Hmm. But he also semi adopted me for, as a son for eighteen months. So I'd never been on a yacht before. He took me on a yacht. We used to go over to his house for dinner, this fancy pied a terre on Park Avenue, and there'd be finger bowls. I didn't know what a finger bowl was, so it's like your soup is watery. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, we became close and then, and then he sent me off into the world. Uh, and it, he did this for dozens and dozens of people. His great skill was friendship. Absolutely fantastic friend. So then you also wrote for the weekly standard and for the wall street journal and then the New York times where you said you were hated on a mass scale. Yeah. Well, I was given the job at the times in 2003 they told me I was as conservative as they thought their readers could stand. And my joke about working at the Times was um, being a conservative columnist at the Times is like being the chief rabbi at Mecca. There's not a lot of company there. Um, but so I got there, and I was, it turns out I was a little more conservative in those days than the readers could stand. So I, in those days, they put our emails at the bottom of the column. And so after about four months, I cleaned up my email folder, and there were 290,000. And the central message was, Paul Krugman is great, you suck. That was the core message. And I had to read them all, I felt. And I got so depressed because it turns out people who write nasty things are emotionally very intelligent. They're just intelligent at learning how to wound you. Hmm. And so I re really got depressed. And then I finally told my assistant he had to read them, and he got depressed. Uh, and so it, it was a, a brutal period of uh, skin thickening. And I guess I had to go through it. Everybody has to go through it. But it, it, was, a, it was the hardest professional period of my life, for sure. Wow. So it just seems like so much of your writing, books, columns, articles, uh, you're drawn to this topic of moral and social decay. Uh, that, that's wow. just how it strikes me. There, it, it's a laugh riot. <laughs> it, or or the, the, the psychological unraveling of America. That, that just <laughs> kind of seems like where, where, you, where you've uh, landed. Is, but I, I just wonder, is that from, if, A, if that's true, B, is that from those Chicago reporting days where you saw that social programs that were high-minded just didn't work. Yeah. And you've been doing that kind of writing ever since? Yeah, that's when I became a conservative. And I'm a certain kind of Burkean conservative, a, a belief that society is really complicated. We should change it constantly but gradually because we should be humble about what we can know. And so I've always had this suspicion of grand plans and, and people who think they can figure out using rational reason. Hmm. But I don't think I write about decay that much. Like The Second Mountain is about redemption. It's about a personal redemption story of me going through hard times and then learning from others how to grow from suffering. Uh, the road to characters about people, I was, we were saying earlier, who were pathetic at age 20, amazing at age 70. Dorothy Day, Francis Perkins, Bayard Rustin, Samuel Johnson. So these are stories of moral and spiritual growth. I would say my the core theme, in, in, in retrospect, I've written about the same sorts of people, but one layer down each time. And a lot of us writers, we figure out our stuff in public. Hmm. We're just, what are we going through? And I don't really tell this story very often, but I'll tell it. 
So I was raised significantly by my grandfather. And he um, was an immigrant kid. He raised me to think as an immigrant kid and to, to write. He was a beautiful writer and to dream big and to try to make it in America. And we were, there are two kinds of Jews in America. There's the kind that you saw on Fiddler on the Roof, all huggy and emotional. And then there's the kind I was from. And so our, the slogan for our kind of people was uh, think Yiddish, act British. Uh, and so, so we were buttoned up. We never expressed emotion. We lived our life from here up. And so we were not emotional. And my parents, my parents loved me fine. They loved me fine, but we would never talk about that or we would never hug or do anything, that kind of thing. And so my grandfather raised me. Uh, when I was about 22, he got cancer and he was in the hospital room. I went to visit him and he says to me, um, I'm a dead duck. I'm going to go. And so I sat there for a few hours and we talked and I'm walking out the door and he says to me, I love you so very much. And to my eternal regret, I did not say it back to him because nobody in my family had ever said that to me. And so a lot of my career is trying to get to be the person who is comfortable saying that back. And so when I write about emotion, the, well, The Social Animal is a book about emotion. And it's about it's written by a guy trying to figure out emotion. And emotion is very closely connected to morality. We don't think our way to be moral. We have moral sentiments, which we try to educate to love the proper things. And so it's about an emotional and moral journey of opening. So what had been repressed is unrepressed. And so if... When I look back now, years later, I think about that theme as the thing I've been pushing. Wow. I, yeah. I, I actually really admire the humility of what you just said about when you write, you're figuring out your own stuff. Because I read other columnists who are telling me this is how you got to think, and this is how the world is. And I never get a whiff of that in your columns. It's, you're, you're just kind of, you let ideas duke it out in, uh, in, in your columns. I just think that's a beautiful thing you've given to us. Uh -huh. it's, it's hard. A column is 850 words, most of them. And my goal is not to tell people what to think, but provide a context in which they can think to give some information, to provoke, to provoke, and hope people will think out of it. And mostly just to, you know, start with a question and see if you can come up with an answer. And, you know, some of the columns I admire the most, or I'm proudest of, are ones that made no political point at all. I wrote a column years ago called The Art of Presence. And I had a friend who was working, who was a, a young singer in D.C., was a friend of mine with, and I had a friend in her band. And she got in this terrible bike accident and really carved up her face. And so I went to visit her. And this woman, Catherine, had an older sister named Anna who was killed in Afghanistan working for a nonprofit called Ashoka. Hmm. 
and her mom was there taking care of Catherine. And so I spent an afternoon talking to her mom about things I didn't know about. How do you sit with people who are in grief? And Mary, her mom, said, you know, people often wonder if I should sit, they should mention Anna to me because they might be bringing up an unpleasant subject. And they should know they should always mention Anna because Anna is always on my mind. And if they mention it, then I can talk about her if I feel like if I don't, I don't have to. That was just useful advice for me. And then while she's taking care of Catherine, uh, she says, you know what the best thing that's happened to me during this period was that somebody came over, brought food, went to the bathroom, noticed there was no shower mat in the shower. They got on their bike, they went to Target, they bought a shower mat, they put the shower mat on the floor, they didn't tell me, but then they left. That kind of practical advice, their thing, this action, that was so fun. I'm so glad they did that. That meant so much to me. And um, so just to know the art of presence, just showing up for somebody. I'm writing a book now on the art of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen. How do you make people feel seen, heard, understood, and valued? Because there are so many people in society who feel invisible. And so, so I always ask people, what's time you felt really seen? And I'm amazed by how many times they don't mention somebody saying something brilliant to them. They just mention an action. So one woman who's probably now in her 40s tells me, when I was 13, I got really drunk, my first party. They dropped me off at home. I was so drunk, I lay on the porch. I couldn't get inside. And my father, who was a big, strict disciplinarian, comes out, and I know he's going to scream at me. And he's going to say all the things that I think are going on in my head already, which is, I'm bad, I'm bad. Instead, he just scoops her up, carries her to the couch, puts her gently on the couch, and he says to her, there'll be no punishment here. The experience was enough. <laughs> and so she felt he understood He's, what she was thinking. He saw her. He saw her. And so it, it, often the, the, those moments are not like you say some wise words. It's not like that. It's just yeah. knowing what to do. You know, I aspire to read as widely as you do. Uh, every column of yours cites a book that I want to read. You got me reading Belden Lane. Uh, just, I'd never heard of this guy. I start reading him and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is awesome. So thank you for that. But do you ha just have this huge staff of people that when you say, I'm working on a book about forgiveness, Ursula, give me everything you have about <laughs> forgiveness. And they just, they just back the truck up and dump it out in your, in your office. How does this work? Uh, no, <laughs> I've. I, I share one assistant at the Times for my columns, but for books, I have no assistants or staff. Um, really? Yeah. Well, what kind of a filing system do you have? Because it's, <laughs> it's, I'm stunned by all of the things you pull in, whether it's polls or statistics or poetry or, or whatever. How do you do this? So normal people, like, go to meetings. I don't go to meetings. <laughs> like, I mention that I write every day. So I write my thousand words. Sometimes it's 930 and I'm done. So I'm calling my friends, let's hang out, I'm done. But they're busy. And so, um, and so I, I am looking around for what books I can use so I can write tomorrow. I've got to reload. And so I'll go online, read long articles, but then I've always got six or seven books. I've got my backpack here. There are probably eight physical books in there. 
and I'm doing a piece on sort of moral change in America. So I've got Walter Lippmann in there and I've got a whole bunch of books and I read two or three this morning. And what the way I read is I mark up what, not necessarily like I'm in the book, I mark up what I need. Right. And a good quote, a good point, a good argument. And I mark it up for a column. I'll have about 350 pages of notes for a book. Hold, 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 hold it. 350 pages of notes for an 850-word column? I've got an eating disorder. What can I say? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not good at writing newspaper columns. I'm a 5,000-word guy. That's my best length. And so I write every column as if it's 5,000 words. And the columns that are really bad are the ones where I try to take a 5,000-word idea and scrunch it to 850. But so I take, say, these 350 pages, and I lay them out on my floor in piles. And each pile is a paragraph in my column. So the process of writing is not typing into a keyboard. It's crawling around the floor, putting each paper on each pile, and organizing the structure of the piles. And then I pick up a pile, bring it to the desk, lay out each page in order, type up the paragraph, throw out the papers, pick up the next pile, type it out, throw out the... And so you go down the piles. And so it's literally a... I somehow need to see it geographically laid out in front of me to know the coherence of it. And so it has to be geographic. And I tell my students, writing is about traffic management and structure. But by the time you type on the keyboard, your paper should be 80% done. And yeah, I was at the Hemingway house or the Faulkner house in Old Miss. He's got the whole outlines of his novels written on the walls. Like a lot of people have this system on one form or another. Just how do you organize all this stuff in your head? And so for me, it's piles. So you just have to figure out a system that works for you. Yeah. So for some people, it's writing on the walls. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I think it's something for everybody, but it's something. So the first three books, um, Bobo's in Paradise, uh, Social Animal, On Paradise Dice Drive, they're so funny. And they're so poignant. Um, but I, I come away from with those books that you just have a disdain for shallow people. Is that, <laughs> is, is, is that accurate? I often say I've made an entire career out of self-loathing. Uh, so. well, well, it wouldn't be self-loathing. It would be because you're not a shallow guy. But, but do you have disdain for shallow people? I don't think so. I, I generally, you know, in our job in journalism, you interview hundreds of people. And I rarely meet somebody I think, oh, I really don't like that person. I, I interviewed a guy, I can't remember which country from, maybe Yemen, this was years ago, a dictator who I was aware had killed hundreds of thousands of people. And you're, you're interviewing about some political situation in Yemen, and he is not dressed in his native costume. He's in a Western suit with his foreign minister, and they're, they've never seen each other in ties. So they're rubbing each other's ties the whole interview. And I, I, sh- I feel like I'm saying, I should be hating this guy. He's a monster. But he's rubbing his, par- his buddy's tie. Like, and so generally I find people fascinating. Like people just, every, I, I so believe, and this is what you've written your book about, I, I'm pretty academic-y, but I so believe in the centrality of the journalistic interview. That interviewing is the gold standard of our profession. 
because it defies every stereotype. I was, I was at a Trump rally years ago in South Carolina. If I remember this correctly, I interviewed a woman who was a lesbian biker who, who'd converted to Sufi Islam after surviving a plane crash and was now supporting Donald Trump. Seems and obvious. I, and I was like, obvious. what stereotype is she walking out of? <laughs> so, like, people are always more complicated, and, and the interview reveals that. And I would say I, I've never had an interview I didn't enjoy. I've almost never. I, most people are infinitely unique and fascinating. So, so with, your, with Bubba's in Paradise and with uh, On Paradise Drive, you, you do these really, really deep kind of analyses and and coming up with uh data and and all just talking about uh your these observations the the wit here okay so here's my favorite out of bobos in paradise and this is out of the chapter on consumption if t.s Eliot were alive today and of a mind he'd open a chain of home furnishing stores called objective correlatives and each object in them would be the physical expression of some metaphysical sentiment. I, I read that in an airport in Salt Lake City. And I, that's just one of those, I circled it. I just thought <laughs> that's just one of the most awesome sentences ever. Or wheat germ toothpaste doesn't kill the bacteria in your mouth. It just asks it to leave. Uh-huh. <laughs> you've, got this, you've got this way... Of, of boiling it all down into these awful, awesome, sarcastic comments. Yeah. Are, are you always judging people? <laughs> well, in that, that's, I called it comic sociology. Uh, and it was the time, if you remember, it was the 90s. And so it was the time of Whole Foods and, you know, um, anthropology, because... If you're going to buy clothing, you're going to buy it from a clothing store named after an academic discipline. And, you know, in those days, to show how much you rejected material things, you uh, had to buy nubby fabrics from Peru and this thick organic bread. Everything was textured in those days, slate shower stalls. And so there was a code of consumption to show how much, how little you cared about money. And it was like you could spend any amount of money in any room formerly used by the servants. And so people were buying these $10,000 Aga stoves, which looked like nuclear reactors, nickel-plated nuclear reactors. And so I, was just, I would just go to an anthropology or to a um, I forget, restoration hardware. I'd just stand there taking notes. Uh, <laughs> it it kind of writes itself. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was in restoration hardware in Palo Alto, and a, a leftist came in and got arrested on the Renaissance couch, this leather couch. It's like... She was ahead of her time, actually. She was right. Um, but, uh, but so it was just... And then on Paradise Drive is more about suburbia. So I went to a Home Depot and I watched American men buy a barbecue grill, which, which is when they're most emotionally exposed. They're like... Um, and so it, it's like... You just watch it and you, you hopefully tell a joke that people said, oh, yeah, we really do a sort of a manly waddle that we do in the presence of large amounts of lumber uh and so those were what those joke those books were so but but with social animal you take a different approach you create these composite characters and you tell their story 
but you underpin their actions with data and studies. And so here's sort of the pattern for social animal. It was narrative, then you'd make a pronouncement, then there would be research that, that, was, that, that, that kind of supported it, and then we went back to the narrative. So why that approach? It was a risk, um, but A, nonfiction is boring unless there's story. So I wanted to create narrative. Two, the research only gets you so far. You do a bit of psychological research, which couldn't be interesting. So I think one of the studies I have in there is, was done in Germany. They take um, research subjects, tape gauze pads to their arm, under their arms, have some of the research subjects watch a horror movie and some watch a comedy. Then they take other research subjects who are presumably highly paid to sniff the gauze pads. And to guess whether they, that person watched a comedy or a, a horror movie. And people can tell with good objectivity, they can tell just by smelling. Women are way better at this than men, by the way. And so that's a bit of research about how much, uh, as mammals, we rely on the sense of smell. And people who lose the sense of smell suffer greater emotional deterioration than people who lose sight or hearing. We're constantly sniffing each other. We don't, we're not aware of it. Um, Some do it more discreetly yeah, than yeah, others. Not to, yeah. But like when you kiss somebody on the first day or first time you kiss, you're somehow swapping saliva and becoming aware of the other person's immune system. And so th this is all going on. So that, that's interesting. But if I'm going to have, A, I'm going to have 300 pages, it's going to get a little dry. But B... It's important to take social science research, which tells us something about ourselves, but to put it into a story of an actual human, or not an actual, but a quasi-human being, an actual character, because we're all much more than the product of our social science findings. And so I wanted to capture the, the pain of a person, the hurt of a person. The book is really about unconscious processes and emotion. And so to capture emotion, I wanted the two people to fall in love. I wanted them to have long periods when their marriage was completely dry. I wanted to have a, there's a young woman who's the heroine of the story who is this immigrant kid, ferociously ambitious, wants to get into a local charter school. They won't let her in. So she bursts into the meeting and says, let me in your school. I need to be in your school. And there's a hedge fund guy who funds the school. And he says, you can't barge in here. Get out of here, kid. We have a system. We have a lottery. She says, I don't care. Leave me in the school. So the hedge fund manager writes something on a piece of paper and slips it to the principal. And he writes, rig the frickin' lottery. He wants to get her in. So you, you want to have an episode mm -hmm. to anchor social science in something that feels like real. And so I'm not a novelist, and I certainly learned that writing that book. But... Um, I thought it was a wonderful approach to talk about basically sociology. Uh, it, was, it was just a really creative um, approach to it, and I, I kind of admired it. But then you do something else. By the time you get to Road to Character, there's this evolution that is taking place, and now you're not just talking about data and sociology and moral and social decay. You're talking about how individuals developed their character and by virtue of our reading that we we kind of see how we can develop it in ourselves so that's a a bit of a departure for you and then by the time you get to second mountain this is 
you know, Road to Character is about how people live out their contradictions. You get to Second Mountain, and it's how you live out your contradictions. It's much, much more personal. Was, how risky was that? Yeah, I, I didn't put myself at all in the first draft. You didn't? No. And uh, it was about what, you know, how people expand morally with me hiding conveniently behind the curtain. But I had been through super hard time, and I realized this is so dishonest. And, you know, the way my hard time took it as a burgeoning workaholic, I, and I wrote about this in The Second Mountain, I had suffered divorce and my kids had gone to college um, or were going to go. And um, I was living in this crappy little apartment and I did what any idiot American male does in the presence of an emotional crisis. You try to work your way through it. I think I'll just work. And so I, the metaphor, which not a metaphor, the real thing, but it was a metaphor for a larger truth, was uh, if you went to my kitchen, I didn't have anybody over. And so if you go to the drawers where there should have been silverware for when I was entertaining guests, there were just post-it notes. And in the pla- where there should have been plates, there was envelopes and stationery. And so that's an objective reality of somebody whose values are screwed up. And so you go through that. I went through a religious awakening at that time. And so I, I never wanted to write about my faith in public because it, it's so green and it's so fragile. It's not like I'm a lifelong believer. I'm a middle-aged believer. Well, and it's hard to hang language on an experience like you've had. How, yeah. do, you, how do you articulate that? I really struggled because I, I didn't have, like, I was searching around. I had, I, you know, I'd always had faith. I was raised Jewish, but I was in a choir, a Christian choir. I went to a Christian school. I went to a Christian camp. Uh, we, I remember in the choir, it was called Grace Church School in New York, and about 30% of us in the choir were Jewish, so we to square it with our religion, we just wouldn't sing the word Jesus. And so the, so the volume would drop experience. down and then would come up. And would, <laughs> uh, that was your experience with civil disobedience. Yeah, at the time. yeah. But, you know, you get seeds planted in your head. And I was around, especially at this camp, and I have a friend, a camp friend named Stephen Morriso who's here with us tonight. Um, we were around goodness. There was a certain sort of Christian beautiful behavior that was goodness. And there's a certain kind of Jewish goodness, which is like homey affection. So you're around this, but it it doesn't seem real. They just seem like stories. And then it begins to become alive. The world begins to seem enchanted, and you're just reading. And it, it turns out if you're searching religiously, especially around Christians, they give you books. Uh, and so I was given in the course of like three months about 500 books only 300 of which were Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and and slowly it just you know that whole series of but I never had a moment like I tell this to I, I should tell that today to Christian students yeah I was searching around and then Jesus walked through the walls and he said follow me I was like, nope, that didn't happen. Yeah. And so the metaphor, which I think I read somewhere, but I can't find the sources, was you're sitting on a train 
and all the people around you are just normal, they're drinking coffee, reading the paper. And you look out the window and you realize there's a lot of distance behind you. And suddenly you're not an atheist anymore. Hmm. And you realize you've crossed over to some border, you're a believer in something. And everybody's still sitting here. It's not like there was some radical transformation. It was very gradual, step-by-step, the most boring religious awakening in the world. (laughs) But suddenly I was in a different country. And that doesn't mean doubt went away. We were talking about a, uh, somebody I admire, I guess someone you knew, Frederick Beekner. Yeah. And he wrote somewhere, and this was a comfort to me. We wake up every morning, and he actually wrote this. And after you read the New York Times, you ask yourself, can I really believe this all over again? And he says, if you say yes 10 days out of 10, I really don't believe you know what faith is. But if you say yes two days out of 10, then on those two days, you should say it with great gladness. And so that, that like said, oh, it's okay to be left the way I am. And so it, it was that kind of gradual settling into a process. So at what point did you say, I need to actually insert myself into Second Mountain? If, if, you're, if you wrote this whole thing, or at least started to without that yeah. dimension... How, how did you come to, actually, I need to get yeah, there? I talk to my friends, and I have a rule, and I, I have violated this sometimes. My, my rule is, not only in stage, but in normal conversation, you should be so vulnerable, not 100%, but so vulnerable you should feel slightly bad about it afterwards. <laughs> uh, the, I learned this the other month, uh, a Danish friend said, the Danes have an expression for this. They have an emotion for, I feel so bad for you. You just express too much emotion in public. Uh, and I get that. <laughs> like I, you don't want to spill your guts. But you want to be honest. And you want to be a little vulnerable. And I will say, most of my books, like every book, is 60% women reader, 40% men. That's the book market. Second Mountain, I would look at the autograph lines. 80% men. You tapped into something. And so I learned there are a lot of middle-aged guys who are going through something. And I learned, especially if I go to a business conference, I'd have CEOs come up to me and say, hey, can we have a private relationship? I, I've got a, nobody to talk to. Hmm. And I realized I could be a CEO whisperer. I could like, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think for guys in particular of a certain age, they're, there's, they're just not, there's not a lot of talk about this stuff. Right. And so I felt if I could be a little vulnerable, could, others could relate. It is a great example of a Dorothy Day quote you have about writing in, uh, in the Road to Character book, where she says, writing is an act of community, an expression of love and concern for each other. That is sort of what you just got at, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and Dorothy Day wrote a beautiful book called The Long Loneliness. I've never met Dorothy Day in my life, but she's one of my life friends and heroes. And she was the sort of woman who, like all the people in the book, was her mess was her life was a complete mess at 25. She was one of these people when she read novels, she couldn't only read the novel, she lived it out. And unfortunately, she read a lot of Dostoevsky. So 
She was like drinking, carousing, suicide attempts. And then I can't remember her exact age, but I guess it was around 30 or maybe a little younger. She has a daughter, not married, but she has a daughter. And I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's a beautiful quote. She, she, she realized during pregnancy that all the accounts of childbirth she'd ever written, read were written by guys. So she thought, I'm going to write one. And she wrote one 40 minutes after her daughter was born. And mostly it's about the pain of the process. But at the end, she says, if I had composed the greatest symphony, written the greatest poem, painted the greatest painting, I could not have felt the more exalted creator than I did when they placed my child in my arms. With that came a flood of exaltation and joy, and with that came a need to thank somebody. Who do I thank for this joy? She realized there must be a God, because that's the only one I can think of to thank. And so she then became a Catholic. Um, So in, in the Road to Character book, you also quote John Ruskin saying, the greatest thing a human soul ever does in this world is to see something and tell what it saw in a plain way. You could be describing yourself. Well, that's one of my favorite quotes. So I, I, it's a goal. But, you know, I live in the world of politics. People see what they want to see. And that's true in life. There's a famous experiment done in the 1950s. There was an extremely vicious football game between Princeton and Dartmouth. And each team, each fan base thought the other side had committed twice as many penalties. They were vicious. They started it. They showed the film to each fan base. And they each side said, see, the film objectively proves the other side did it. And the researcher says, what we've learned from this, there's no game out there. There's just each person's experience of the game. Life is not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. And there's a great Aeneas Nin quote, uh, we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. And so there's just a lot of subjectivity in the world. And what Ruskin's pointing to is the ability that some people have, and I would put Tolstoy in this camp, I would put George Orwell in this camp, I would put George Eliot in this camp, of just to get themselves out of the way and see reality plainly and to be honest about it. And Orwell, for all of us who do this work, Orwell is a hero because it doesn't matter if it's his side or the other side. He's going to just be brutally honest. He's, he said he had the power of facing unpleasant truths. And that's a very good quality to have in anybody. You know, you are so much more comfortable using language like um, sin, holiness, wisdom, loving your enemies, Soul, the word soul, forgiveness, suffering. You're so much, you talk about those a lot more than our religious leaders do. And I'm just wondering, how come you're so comfortable with that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's not a, my living. Uh, you know, I, I, especially coming from the world of politics, I think we're over-politicized and under-moralized. That we talk about politics too much, we fight about it too much. Yeah. Um, and the real difficult and important things are how do I be a good husband? How do I be a good father? How do I build a relationship with somebody at work? How do I remain faithful under temptation? Uh, and um, 
I've tried, I think we don't have enough public voices just using the language. And I told you earlier today when I was on TV talking about the road to character before it came out, I used the word sin because the people I wrote about knew they were sin, sinners. And they struggled with that and they figured, how can I be redeemed from my sin? Uh, and so I used that word and an editor at another house, publishing house, wrote to me and said, you know, I love the way you talked about your book, but don't use the word sin. It's too much of a downer. Uh, use the word insensitive. I was like, yeah, the Nazis were really insensitive. Uh, and, and so I, but I wanted to learn how to use it so people could, would not reject it. Because a lot of people have used the word sin in regards to like, oh, sex is a sin. Or having fun is a sin. Puritans are not really Puritans. Puritans get a bad rap. They were wonderful people. But the people we call Puritans, um, like they used it as a mask for hypocrisy. So how do you talk about sin in a secular world? And so I borrowed, as I mentioned you today, St. Augustine. St. Augustine has this concept of disordered loves. We all love a lot of things, but we all know some things are higher than others. If I cheat to make money, I put my love of money over my love of honesty. That's a sin. If you tell me a secret and I blab it at a dinner party, I put my love of popularity over my love of friendship. That's a sin. It's not about depravity. It's we're all kind of screwed up in some way, and we put our lower loves above our higher loves some of the time. And so we need to educate our emotions so we love the highest things. So it's about refining your love. And, and that, uh, that's something we can all sort of relate to, that we, we act shallowly when we could act nobly. We do that. That's a daily occurrence. And so, but if you, you know, if you don't have the word sin, you don't have redemption, if you don't know what grace is, like, um, I, I tell my students, how many, you got sick, you, maybe you lost a loved one. I bet that some people you thought would show up for you didn't show up. But I bet there were other people you never expected to show up who totally showed up. That's grace. Uh, you know, and so if you don't have those words, it's hard to understand your moral growth. Forgiveness. And Martin Luther King was a master at forgiveness. He said, forgiveness is not denying the sin and the, it's just saying the sin will not be a break in our relationship. And once you have a concept of forgiveness, then you have a structure for how to do it. You confess the sin. You try to repair the sin. You ask forgiveness for the sin. You try to make accounting for the sin. It's a whole set of stages. And so forgiveness is not cheap, but it's part of a process of a relationship repair. And so King had this concept of the sinfulness in others, which meant that when he was fighting the Civil Rights Act of, uh, movement, he couldn't just expect people to like read an enlightening book and then think, oh yeah, segregation is wrong. He had to shove their sin in their face. It was aggressive. But then he knew that in the course of this, he himself was likely to be seduced by power, by fame, by the violence of any conflict. And so there had to be a process of self-discipline, of, of redemption, of forgiveness of sin, of self-doubt, and reliance on grace. So, you know, the civil rights movement was this incredibly complicated set of moral actions 
which were completely aware of the brokenness of people in all sides. And that's a level of moral sophistication you are unable to have if you don't have these concepts. Sure. So what advice would you give us as citizens to live more peacefully with one another, to talk with each other more civilly uh, than we do? I know you don't think these are the most divisive times that we've ever had in this country. Some people have said they are. I know you don't think they are. But what, what can bind us together? You'd think a pandemic would have done it. Yeah, I thought that for three weeks. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, pandemics really historically drive people apart because we're suspicious of each other. Um, you know, the book I'm working on is about making other people feel seen, heard, and understood. And it's just there's just an epidemic of blindness in the country. It's like rural people not feeling seen by urban people, blacks feeling whites don't understand their daily experience, Republicans and Democrats looking at each other in blind incomprehension. And I've come to think that the most important skill for any successful family, organization or school or country is people feel dignified, they feel seen, they feel understood. And this is a skill. And it's a set of skills that's Start with empathy. Start with just accompaniment. Most of life, we're not going to like have deep conversations all the time. We're just going to be feel be together, and being together, talking about sports, our bodies begin to feel safe together. And so the mind can't enter if the body doesn't feel safe. And then empathy. But the one thing I've learned is that we all think we understand the people around us, and I don't know everybody in this room. But I would ask you, how good are you are knowing what's going on in the mind of the people around you? And I can say with absolute confidence, you're not as good as you think you are. The people study this. So if we're talking and I think I know what's going on in your head, on average, I'm going to be right 22% of the time. Hmm. Some people are right 0% of the time. Yeah. They think they're right 100% of the time. <laughs> they're the most vocal ones. <laughs> yeah, right. And so what's the skill that correlates with knowing somebody well. Is it empathy? No. Empathy can get a little way, not very far. It's verbal intelligence. It's the ability to ask you the right questions and listen carefully to your answers. Hmm. You, we can't, there's this thing called perspective taking where I'm going to get your perspective. That doesn't work. It's got to be perspective asking. So you wrote about the questions. I now collect very good questions. Like you start off with the normal questions like, Where'd your name come from? That's a good question. But then at some point in a relationship when there's trust, you ask elevated questions to get people thinking about their life in new ways. So a good question to me is, uh, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Fear governs all our lives in some way, but we don't always think about it. What crossroads are you at? What commitment have you made that you no longer believe in? Most of us don't know ourselves. The only way we can know ourselves is in conversation with another. And so as we talk, we engage in joint exploration of each other. And that's just a beautiful way to deepen a relationship. And if we can't have those kinds of conversations, it's not about being civil to each other. It's about mutual exploration to find out who we are and how we're different. So 
Tell me if this is related. I'd love to hear your explanation of, you're fond of this phrase from Hegel, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. Why is that meaningful to you? Well, now I'm getting older. So the, the phrase means that we, that we become wise as we're ending. And, you know, we live our life forward, but understand it backwards. And I, I do generally think people get better at living as they go along. They get out of their own way. Uh, especially for guys at 50, they become really interested in legacy and how can I serve the community? I think women do this throughout their lives. But I, I tell guys, you know, remember when you were 14 and sex came in your life and suddenly you discovered horniness? When you get to be 50, there's going to be a generative horniness that enters your life. And you're just going to do something good for society. And you're going to be driven by a different moral motivation. And there's a phrase at the end of life. This is a psychologist, Eric Erickson. He's got these different phases in life. A little schematic, but the end phase is integrity versus despair. That either you can look back and understand the meaning of your life and find satisfaction in how you lived your life or you feel despair. And at, earlier in my career, I asked the readers of the Times to send me, over, those over 70, to send me life reports and grade themselves on their personal life, their professional life, their romantic life. They gave themselves an average grade of A- minus on their professional life and B- minus on their personal and relational life. And the people who were happiest are those who divided their lives into chunks and every three to five years, they said, okay, what's this chapter about? And if they didn't like their life, they could readjust. The people who were unhappiness never did that exercise, and they just drifted along. Hmm. And there was one guy who wrote to me. Actually, one of the guys, it was remarkable. We, he wrote about his workaholism and then his love for his wife that had developed after he got sick. And we featured him, a lot of quotes from his report. I opened the front page of the New York Times, like six months later, he killed his wife. It's like, people, they are complicated. But the, the one case I recall was a guy who gave himself an F. He said, I was an Eeyore. I was gloomy. I never took a risk. And it's a cliche, but of the 5,000 people who wrote, every single one Loved the risks they took even when they went south. It's just to take risks. Um, but he said, I, I really didn't seize life. And I give myself an F. And I said, well, I want to take your name off, but, uh, but can I run it? He said, you don't need to take my name off. And it, it was a, one of the most poignant letters, just of somebody with regret. Yeah. And, and those who live with regret are those who didn't take the time to really be intentional about what am I going to do with the next five years? I told students today, don't ask what are you going to do with your life? That's too big a question. Just what's the chapter? What's the next chapter? What advice do you have for writers? Well, the, the obvious one is write every day. Uh, use the muscle. But the other one is know something about something. Which is like if I, if I were 20, like I've developed this interest in neuroscience, so I, I know something about neuroscience now. But I would probably, if I was 20, I'd probably know something about genetics. Whatever I'm going to do for the rest of my life, genetics will be interesting. 
And there are a million writers out there, but if somebody's, you're going to ask somebody to read you, you've got to bring something to the table, some field of expertise uh, that you can really be a teacher in. And there's a phrase we both love, and I consider myself not a writer or a teacher. Mm-hmm. I share other people's wisdom. I don't necessarily come up with it. And the phrase I think we, we came upon separately but both like is writers are beggars who tell other beggars where they found bread. And so if I find a quote from Frederick Beekner or Christian Wyman or Cornell West, I'm going to use that quote. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to mean something to me. Yeah. Uh, and it'll enrich my life. And I want to share that with, with everybody. I'm wondering if we could end this. I didn't ask you this ahead of time, so you can say no. <laughs> uh, you want th- me to moonwalk? <laughs> no. <laughs> There's, there's an interpretive dance. I, I, no. Uh, there's a section out of the road to character. I'm wondering if you would be open to reading it as, okay. a, as a conclusion. I, I will tell you that I, 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 have, I call it reporting, but you will call it name dropping. Uh, I was interviewed by Oprah for uh, the last two books. Why do you keep bringing her up? What's, uh, <laughs> I'm so sick of hearing about Oprah all day. It's Oprah all day. Well, it was Barbara Streisand and I and Oprah were sitting around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so she asked me to read something for her Super Soul Sunday show. So I think this is Oprah. I'm going to do it at the, my most emotional. And I'm really emoting like crazy. She pulls the book out of my hand, says, let's not do this. <laughs> and then she reads it. And it's like supernova. It's like, so I'll do my best. Or do you want me to do it? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's this last line on that page and then to the, those last okay. two pages. Okay. I hope you picked a good one. Okay, well, this is on our theme. People do get better at living, at least if they are willing to humble themselves and learn. Over time, they stumble less, and eventually they achieve moments of catharsis when outer ambition comes into balance with inner aspiration. When there is a unity of effort between Adam 1 and Adam 2, when there is that ultimate tranquility and that feeling of flow, when moral nature and external skills are united in one defining effort. Joy is not produced by, because others praise you. Joy emanates unbidden and unforced. Joy comes as a gift when you least expect it. At those fleeting moments, you know why you were put here and what truth you serve. You may not feel giddy at those moments. You may not hear the orchestra's delirious swell or see flashes of crimson and gold, but you will feel a satisfaction, a silence, a peace, a hush. Those moments are the blessings and the signs of a beautiful life. David Brooks, thank you for being at our... You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.